That's your t-shirt now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Good day, mate. This is it. <laughs> this is it. The first right. of many, I suppose. The I first suppose. of many. Yeah, so, Chris, um, what is it like being James Bond? Is it, is it interesting? Is it fun? Is this, it, is this how it's going to be <laughs> yeah. for the next however long? Yeah. He said he wouldn't do this. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't even know where to begin other than it's a fascinating story. Your life is a fascinating story. So I, I've been talking to you for I don't know, a couple of years now. But there are things that I, I've learned in the last few weeks that I think are incredibly interesting. And uh, first, I think it would be uh, suitable for everybody if you just tell everyone who you are and where you came from. Because uh, we don't have sails. So I think you flew. You didn't sail across the ocean, right? That's you right, actually yeah. flew. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So give us, give us a short bio. So my name is Christian Craighead. Mm-hmm. I'm from uh, Newcastle in northeast England. So it's on the border with Scotland. So a lot of people in North America seem to think I'm from Scotland. You sound like it. Well, I'm fr- it's, my accent's called a Geordie. So. It's Geordie? Yeah, Geordie. So people from Newcastle, um, like say northeast England, right. live on the borders. So. Okay. And then what year did you join the, the British military? I joined the uh, British Army in 1992 at the age of 16. Not long before my 17th birthday. So what all did you do when you were in the military? So you joined at 16 uh, and what was, well, what, we'll get into that, what that was like, but kind of give us a, a summary of your positions in the, in the British Army. Firstly, I, I suppose I should have thought about this before I was coming on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is completely unprepared. It's, I Good. just thought, oh, I'll just come on and yeah, chat to yeah. Evan and, and it's going to be simple. Right. I didn't realize I'd have to work for this. But yeah. um, so I joined the uh, British Army in 1992, mm-hmm. spent a, almost a year in training because back then we had the junior para. So was, I joined the parachute regiment. It's called the junior para. So it's junior because you joined um, below the age of. 17 and a half or 18. Right. So you have to become a junior. They've, this was actually the last the last platoon, if you like, when it happened. And then they, they shelved it and then started again in a different format. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was this was a real experience, a, a real, and at the deep end, if you like, the parachute regiment is, is the premier fighting unit within the British Army. Right. And um, it's hard to do comparisons, but we'll, I suppose we'll have to do this throughout this, yeah. This chat, it's the the parachute regiment is almost like the Rangers, mm-hmm. especially back then, right? When before the war on terror, so we joined the I joined the junior para at um, just before my seventeenth birthday, six months of training in in junior para, and then to depot para. Which what, what's that? It's then the what we would call adult training. So uh-huh. it's the the regular training to become a, a regular soldier. Right. And and from then we went to older shot, and then not long into older shot, it got dropped on us. We're going to Catterick, which is northern England, and and which is where the training is now. Mm-hmm. 
So we went up to Carrick and then passed out of the training in um, August 1993 and right. then joined 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment. Okay, so as a, as a junior para at, at almost 17 years old, that's six months of training. So I'm assuming that's a lot like basic training for the United States Army. Yeah. Um, so but when do you go to jump school? So um, jump school happens at the back end of training on mm-hmm. when you're uh, at depot para, if you okay. like. From adult. Uh, yeah. yeah, gotcha. So then six months of training, junior para. Um, we do go to Aldershot, then Carrick, and then we do something called P Company. Mm-hmm. P Company is pre-parachute selection. It's uh, a really hard training course that uh, not many people pass. What, what does it entail? Well, it's fast and furious. Yeah. Um, it's starts well. I'm not going to go through it in in itself. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. fascinating um, course, and it's it's like it is hard. How long? How so? How long does it take? Like, what are you doing throughout that entire? Well, it's not classified or anything. No, right? big company. No, yeah. it's just uh, it's changed a lot since I did it. Um, but it's assault like sort of starts off with assault course. There's a log race in it. The log race is pretty brutal, and then and rock marches. Yeah, it, it, it's only. The company itself is only five days, which okay. doesn't sound like much, but you build up to it. Um, and and then when you pass, then you that gives you permission, if you like, to go on and do the parachute course. Mm-hmm. And everyone who's an operational parachutist in the British military has to do an arduous course. And P Company is one of these courses that qualifies you to do it. Got it. And then how long is the, the airborne school, the British airborne school? Um, I believe it's... Um, it's going back a few years now. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was four weeks. Okay. And um, sadly, because of because of cutbacks, because of aircraft availability, right. young paratroopers now, the, the pass out of training, go to their parachute battalions, and then somewhere in their military career, return to, to jump school, to RAF Bryce Norton, to complete their parachute course. Got it. Now, for me, I was fortunate enough, um, things were different back then, so you'd pass out of training as a, as a paratrooper, as a qualified paratrooper. Got it. So when I was 17 years old, um, I jumped out of an aeroplane. First it was the balloon. So we even had the balloon jump then. Right. The World War II barrage balloon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's just yeah. uh, an amazing experience. <clears throat> I, I should add, I mean, it's going to come out, but, you know, the, the, the sheltered life that I leave, I, that, I think it's quite a cool thing that you can, that I jumped out of a C-130 aircraft before I... Uh, Slept with a woman. So. <laughs> so stand up virgin soldiers. So yeah, I you know, I, I think that's I think that's that's appropriate. I mean, I think the the uh the the uh males would just be better off if that's that was the progression, right? You had to jump out of a C one thirty before you actually got <laughs> you laid. have to earn the right. <laughs> <laughs> well it, so the balloons, I jumped a balloon in Korea. It's like a Got a big square in the center of the hole, the basket, and you jump out of it. So, are you guys? What are you guys doing? Is it, it like was, a platform, um, or how was it? It was the the basket, mm-hmm. and there's just like a, th- a thin metal rail, yeah. And the and the parachute jump instructor would open it up. Oh, and I nice. think it's. A, I think every parachute jump instructor has the same old joke. So you'd open this little thin rail, right? And you go, "Oh, just let all the air rush in." <laughs> <laughs> Trying like. That's a solid joke. Yeah. It is. This it's, is like four guys on there who are probably terrified. Yeah, they're and terrified. Like, it's deathly si- silence. It's quiet. It? Yeah, it's quiet. 
um, there's just the thing cable holding connected yeah. to the guy. It's an old World War II like barrage balloon. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and he opens it up, and he just it's just like, and like number one in the door. Yeah. So the first guy goes up, and then, and then you hear him jump. Mm-hmm. He, it's like go stand by, go. And you hear the 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. And then it's number two. I, I, I can't remember what number it was. I think right. it might have been number one. Um, that's about right. Some, it's a consistent theme in your life. Uh, number, number one. one. Yeah. I, uh, it was death. It, it, it's, it's eerie because it's so quiet and you can hear the rubber bands on your shoot, like pump, 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 like as you're hopping out of the back of that thing. That's one thing I was like, I'll always remember quietness and then the static line getting dunk, 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 as it's like coming out but but i think the the balloon jump and i and i and i know you're going to be able to relate to this as, as many other people are this when i say people are terrified that's not actually true yeah because you're getting in the, you you're nervous you go for yeah. a you get onto the uh the 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 box if you like and it's right. slowly going up to 800 feet right and in that slope movement up to 800 feet, you're going through lots of different thoughts, thinking about different things, running through different scenarios. And it stops, like, this is it. It's the realization, hey, I'm going to have to jump out of this. Right. Now, again, funny old joke, opens the, opens the gate, it's, it's, it's on. And this sense of nervousness is, is, going, is ebbing away right. more and more as you move towards that moment, right. that moment of truth. And then you get to the door or to the edge and it's like everything else stops. Right. And then it's go and you're out yeah. and you're in the moment. The parachute opens and then it's a completely different feeling. Of, yeah. And for me, it's, it was almost satisfaction because not so much because the parachute had opened. It's because I'd wanted to do that, be a paratrooper right. since, it was, since as long as I can remember, since about four or five years old. Right. And that was it. I'm a paratrooper and that was the, the a good moment. And then, and then you land and then it's progress onto a C-130, mm-hmm. um, which is completely different now because now they use a sky van yeah. and they're lucky if they even get a C-130 to jump out of. Right. It's a sad times. Um, so it's, but it's like a lot of things we build up to something and people say, oh, when you go through the door, whatever door that might be, whatever, if it's an interview, whether it's a podcast, whether yeah. it's, it's, you build up to it and you're yeah. going through these, but when it's on, it's on. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting to explain things, controlling adrenaline and controlling uh, your, your fear, which is, it's a, it's a practiced and learned skill. I think that it's something that you can continue to, to um, evolve into. I've, I've talked a lot about it, I think internally, maybe not inside the podcast, but there, there are moments in your life where your insides, you're freaking the fuck out. Mm -hmm. Like they, they're the, there's so much adrenaline going on inside of you that you, you don't exactly know how you're going to control it. But somehow like you start talking to yourself or you start working through a process and you, 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 start putting it into a box. You almost like start pushing it down and like making it smaller and controlling it. And you know, it's there. Yeah. You, it's, it's, it's always there. And it's like, it's almost like there's so much energy 
that if you were to open that thing up, it would just consume every aspect of you and it would make you completely non-functional and you know it. So you got to like, you got to like hack away at it to keep it into this little tiny little box where you know it's there, but then focusing on what you do keeps it at bay to a certain degree. And I think, and I hope that that carries on with a lot of people because I think what drives it is, is, it's necessity. You've got, mm-hmm. you've got to do it. Sometimes you're it. Yeah. And, you know, you might be there with your family or you might be doing something with all your friends mm-hmm. and you're like the, the leader, if you like, or you, it, it's, you've got to do what you've got to do. And everyone else maybe is freaking out. And like you said, you've just got to go. Because if you don't do it, bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you've got to control it. And maybe it's just being stubborn as yeah. well. If, and, and a lot of people, like who, who, who've done what we've done, we're trying to prove something to ourselves as well. Yeah. So, so even if it wasn't on us to do something, we find we feel that because we're little people, I'm only five foot ten, and uh, and it's like you and you carry yourself like you're five seven. <laughs> it's bad posture, bad posture. It's like five ten. I love it when people say how tall are you and say five ten and you'll look at me going, no. And I'm like, what do you think I just lied to you? Because yeah. you made, I just made that up all my life. Oh yeah, I'm five foot ten. And I, and I go, no. I'm like, yes. I'm like, measure me if bad posture, you know, you know. Uh, I love the reaction because every time, like the last couple of weeks, we've been cruising around and uh people have heard of your story. We'll go into too much detail, but and it's so fun throughout the years when people they they would always do this to me they because they would ask me like well was you what what do you do in the military or whatever but like, oh, I'm a you know you whether maybe like a MOS or I'd say oh I'm a I'm a Green Beret or I'm a Special Forces guy and they'd go ah, yeah you sure you sure about that little guy you know and I'm like no that's yeah but now. You're you're so um, kind, you know. You're humble and you're kind, and I think a lot of people when they hear your story and I'll go, "Oh, that's um, that's Chris," and this is what he did, and they go, "That guy? Is that so? That guy did that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's what he did." It it there's this like general perception I think from a lot of civilians that you have to be 10 feet tall and bulletproof in order to carry uh, this, this certain regimental crest or whatever it might be. And it's just not the case. There's, there's like the guys that you meet in special operations globally. There's just very few of those guys, uh, excluding like I did a rotation with the Polish Grom and all those guys seemed like they were like Viking tall, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember meeting the, um, the Swedish special forces. Yeah. And they all look like bad guys from Die Hard. Yeah. They're like all like seven foot tall, good looking, like well dressed. Yeah. If, if I had to do it like again, us. yeah, they, if I had to do it again, that's what I would join. It's the Swedish special forces. Just mainly because I, I really like the environmental aspects of the Swedish uh, female population. But that's. <laughs> <laughs> So, so controlling adrenaline, controlling fear, that's something that you know a little bit about. And that started at such a young age. 
You're 16 and a half when you join. You're 17 when you become a paratrooper. You go on to the, the infantry, basically. And so it's a parachute infantry, right? Yeah, yeah. And what was that like? Because you're you're not even 18. Mm-hmm. You can't drink a beer. Yeah. You are living in the barracks. You probably can't even have like posters on your wall. And you're 17 years old and you're out ruck marching and living in the military. You're, yeah. you're living a military life. I mean, I think it... it I look back at it mm-hmm. and it's one of these strange... Um, feelings where I'm I'm really proud of it. Yeah. I'm really like positive about it. And it shaped me mm-hmm. to become this person who I am. But if I had a 16 year old son, right. I'd have, I'd feel a bit like, oh, that weary him doing that. Right. But so it's a it's a bit hypocritical. But I think a lot of people who've done junior para and then went on to the parachute regiment will agree with me that it was a good thing and it, it, it makes makes a certain class of soldier mm-hmm. who who uh, goes above and beyond normal normal duty most of the time. They had a good track record of it. And I think there was a lot of protests within the parachute regiment when they when they said, Oh, we're gonna we're gonna um finish junior para. Right. It's like I say, it started back up again now, but it's in a completely different format. Little things like in Junior Para, on a Saturday morning, we'd do a, a rug march. Right. Every Saturday morning, building up to eventually be a 10-miler. Yeah. Now I feel sorry in hindsight. You look, feel bar- sorry for the instructors who on a Saturday morning had to come in and, right. and do that every weekend. But it's pretty hardcore. And after a whole week of fitness as well. And, yeah. And we used to train every day and train hard. And it was, a, it's a, it's, um, yeah, it's, it was definitely something, something. Something that shaped a lot of people. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said about, for a lack of a better term, indoctrinating uh, uh, late teen males into military culture because of the effectiveness. Uh, you can you can mold them through their 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 um, their brain development years to be a highly effective. Uh, fighting individual, right? And they, yeah. they can, you can put them into a series of, of performance-based skills and tasks that allow them to, to really rise. I think that's why Ranger Regiment in the United States, why that's, it's such an effective unit because a lot of those guys are 18, 19 years old when they join and they're, they're indoctrinated into a very uh, combat effective, uh, very Tightly organized, I think they they tend to have probably the best senior enlisted men leaders in the in the military. Whereas you go to the Green Berets, you're you're an e, everybody's an E five E six. You, you you're running indigenous host indigenous force, but you're not leading Americans typically, like in a fire team or in a squad. That comes from. That that level of management and leadership that guys continue to develop over the course of decades once they've joined, yeah, it's, it's very hard to replicate that type of experience. So, how long were you then in the in the para? So I was I was in the the parachute battalion, if you like, for three years, uh-huh. and then I um, after a bit of exposure to a unit called Pathfinder platoon. Mm-hmm. 
Um, What's that? Pathfinder Platoon is the Airborne Brigade Reconnaissance Unit. Mm -hmm. So it's a, again, into comparisons, but like Force Recon. Oh, okay, Marine gotcha. Force Recon. Yeah. Um, I applied for selection to, mm -hmm. to go on to Pathfinder Platoon. What's that selection like? It's, uh, again, a Fast and Furious yeah. um, selection. The first week is supposed to replicate P Company. So it's rook marches on a set route, but at a fast pace. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into um, hills similar to Special Forces selection. Mm -hmm. So eventually moving on to carrying rooks, navigating through uh, arduous terrain um, at four kilometers, four, four kilometers an hour. Mm -hmm. um, that finishes a live firing package again which is pretty tough and um, starting at normal um, section level attacks mm -hmm. building up to contract drills so working in small teams um, extracting yourself in a firefight and then to a final exercise so it's a short uh, five or six week course right? but there's a lot to it and it's got a again a very not many people Past the course. What, what's the ratio on on pass fail? So that? on average, you'd get about fifty to sixty um, on day one, mm -hmm. with about five or six um, passing on 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 the. Oh, that's day. great! Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a highly successful selection. It's, I mean, it's great. I love I love hearing data like that because it's <laughs> like ten percent. That's awesome. But um, and it, and it's a, it's a good. At the time, it was um, and I think it's gone back to that now it's it's seen as a stepping stone onto onto special forces units right onto onto tier one special forces unit yeah and and um in my time in pathfinders it's i worked with some of the best soldiers on i'd say on the planet right and it was a it's a bit of a love-hate relationship with me because i i spend a long time there yeah and i and i wanted to get out but there was nowhere better to go right so um um and i was badly injured whilst i was there and so we had a rocky relationship with with the with the platoon, but it was some real good experiences. And like I say, some of the the best soldiers on the planet were in that platoon. And then I met them again later on in life. Right. So, well, so how long were you there? Um, nine years. Oh wow, nine years. So you're ninety two. You join uh, twelve years later. This is two thousand four, two thousand five. Okay. 2005, that, that was yeah. my end of my time in, in Pathfinders. Did, so did you do Afghanistan or Iraq with the Pathfinders? I did um, Iraq with mm -hmm. Pathfinders. That was my first time as a team leader within Pathfinders as well. So it was a, it was a good moment. Okay, so, so tell me, uh, your, start unpacking your Iraq experience, the first one. So everyone, this is this is going back to two thousand and three. Yeah, the invasion of Iraq, right? Holding up, I was a team leader. Um, really good. Like my team was the uh, three four Delta, mm -hmm. and it was uh, was a bit of the wild bunch, um, but some uh, real good soldiers who I would see a lot of whom I'd see later on in life, right? Um, and we were just getting ready. We weren't sure what what exactly how the how the war was going to pan out. We if you can remember back then, we weren't even sure if we were going to invade yeah. Iraq. It was all, are we, aren't we? I'm right. sure that our political masters knew we were always going to. Right. But troops on the ground, we we didn't know. Where were you guys prepping? In uh, Kuwait. Yeah, okay. And then um, just prepping, we're just doing, so it was all going to be vehicle vehicle mm -hmm. mounted, so using two to cut down Land Rovers to do reconnaissance um, um, patrols. Yep. 
And um, yeah, well, it was good preparation. We were ready, all set. And then the invasion happened. And then we crossed the border. Um, again, we were, we were held to the rear under crossing the border. Mm-hmm. And then we moved and we set up um, base in, um, in like a dis- disowned factory right. with, the, with the 16 Air Assault Brigade headquarters. Mm-hmm. And then we were just, my, my patrol was waiting, waiting for a mission. Right. Some, um, so how long were you there on the invasion? Again, this is... A uh, long time ago. Long, yeah, a long yeah. time ago. But A um, few months? Yeah, a few months. Yeah. We, and we got the mission and it was a great mission. What um, was it? It was a, a reconnaissance, a reconnaissance mission. So it was good. So we'd, in my time in Pathfinders, we mm-hmm. we deployed before in um, Kosovo, uh, Sierra Leone. But we hadn't really been used as our in our real role, which was doing reconnaissance missions, right. whether it be an observation post or close target reconnaissance, right. which is, as you know, sneaking, sneaking around the enemy troops, mm-hmm. gaining intelligence. And um, this mission came in for, for my, my patrol and it was a close target reconnaissance of a, an Iraqi armored division. Right. Estimated 4,000 armored vehicles. So it was, it was juicy. Yeah, it yeah. It was nice. And, uh, yeah. And, and going back to indoctrination about there's a high chance we were going to meet the enemy. Yep. Even though that would be, in theory, you could say a mission failure because it's a reconnaissance. Correct. But it was like, hey, Chris, you know, a, you don't have to accept this mission because the, the chances of you coming across the enemy is high and mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be outgunned, outnumbered with no support. Right. And I'm like, sounds perfect. <laughs> I mean, and every single one of the guys with me in three, four Delta were like, "Yes, this is it. This is, this is let's do it." What we might die, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, when and um, so breaking down, uh, we uh, we had a sponsor patrol that that which was uh, so we'd use another patrol to look after our vehicles, right? Uh, whilst we went on foot and did mm-hmm. the reconnaissance, and I I broke down the team into uh, into um, three three of us, so we could move quietly. Right. Uh, and if we got into any trouble, hopefully we could slip away. Right. And um, I don't want to give any spoilers away because hopefully yeah. in the future, people might be able to read about this. Right. Is, uh, is yeah, we got, we met, we met the enemy. We, we came across a, an Iraqi ambush position and that's the first time I uh, killed someone as well. Mm. So, so how, <clears throat> how, what was the size of the force that you encountered? It was, uh, Eight, around by eight men. Okay. There might right. have been more, but right. visual, visual was it. That's great. And uh, and then it was just, again, pure uh, th- three of us onto the enemy force. Uh, and it was just aggression, speed, speed, aggression, surprise. So you ambushed them? It was, well, what what happened was it's a bit of, bit of luck, bit of faith, bit of whatever. Right. I'm, I'm walking down this track and I shouldn't have been on the track, but the going was so bad. Right. We were, we were, we were to get caught in the open. So I pulled in the three guys and said, look, we need to get on the track. We'll move down the track to, there were some power lines crossing it. Mm-hmm. This will be the demarcation line, if you like. Right. Once we get hit the power lines, we'll go back onto cross graining because otherwise we're never going to make the objective. And right. We're going to be stuck in the open. Is everyone happy with that? Because I didn't want to do something that was, you could, people would looking, oh, that's unprofessional. Sure. And, and I wanted to, everyone to say, you understand that? And they were like, yeah, well, let's do it. So got on the track and then moved it it's at a good pace, but maintaining tactical discipline mm-hmm. down the track. 
And then uh, just as we the, the power lines were approaching, I, I had a, like a, a day sack on with the radio and I stopped to adjust it because it was right. digging into my shoulders. And as I stopped, I could hear whispering. <laughs> what? Just about two, two or three yards to my, to my right over a berm. And I could hear whispering. And I was like, so I turned to the guys and was like, Whoa. The guy, guy behind me froze. So, and as he, I was like, come in, come in. I was like, whispered, I think there might be enemy forces, enemy forces down there. And, and whether they heard me whispering, whether they heard me adjusting, someone stood up and looked. Right. Look. So I immediately raised my weapon and, um, and, and engaged. Right. One shot, um, got a stoppage. Nice. So, and we, 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 we were sure we were going to meet the enemy. So we, we cleaned our weapons before yeah, we yeah. left. We even stripped down our magazines. And that's how, much, shit. how confident we were to get yeah. into a fight. Hit, don't know if I hit him or not, but he dropped. Right. So I then, don't know, again, we were talking about before doing this. Yeah. Put it all in a box. Put it all in a box. It's on. So I ran up to the berm, pulled out the, had a, a, a AJ grenade and just threw the grenade down behind the berm. Right. Um, grenade detonated. There's a bit of a scream. And because I'd had the stoppage, I pulled out my pistol and just right. engaging all the, the guys with weapons. They all had weapons or ambush position. And, and, and like, so I had the old Browning high power and then engaging all the, uh, all the um, combatants. Right. Guy to my right swings up um, with, his, uh, with the M249, right. the Minimi, and starts making music with that and sort of <laughs> neutralizing all the threats. Right. And uh, he's just like, and again, complete professional button down. And then um, the third guy was armed with a sniper rifle mm. and he, he uh, pulled some hand grenades and threw it into depth. I was like, right, let's go. Let's go. Once I died, I uh, neutralized um, five Iraqi soldiers. Right. And then, and the guy to my right, uh, two plus. And then, so I was like, let's go. And then working in pet, like, so... Those two working as a pair and me as an individual, mm-hmm. bounding back. Right. Once we'd bound back, um, I then turned and went, right, let's, let's fucking go. Right. We ran down and for about two kilometers to like an RV point to get uh-huh. picked up. And that's right. why when people say, I don't know why, I don't understand why soldiers have to put all the gear on and run as fast as you can, because mm-hmm. that's why. Right. That's in, in the British Army, they have a two miler. Yeah. Which is, it's pretty hard. It's, it's two miles wearing all you. All your shit. Assault gear and you and you right. run out. It used to be an 18 minute pastime. I don't know what it is now. I don't even know if they do it. Mm-hmm. But that's why you do that test. It's hard. And right. you like run and you're running for your life. And when we got to the RV, going back to do the mindset of people is get to the RV. No, no, none of the Iraqis are following us up. But we're not happy about that. Right. We're pissed off. Because <laughs> yeah. we want it. We want it. We want the fight. Right. We want this like. Oh, it'd be awesome if wouldn't it be awesome if loads of tanks and <laughs> yeah. after it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, we're gonna die. It's awesome. It's, but yeah, like um, the guy next to me, Larry, he was like, oh, like hitting. He's like, why the fuck aren't they following us? He was wanting it, and like, and then the other guy, Paddy, say sniper, sniper right. up, and he's like, be perfect for him because he would just be. Dead. Oh yeah. But at that stage of the war, feel the the Iraqis were on the verge of surrendering and yeah. they were like, what's the point? 
Right. What's the you know what's, what's the, the point? What's the point? They've just lost some guys. Mm-hmm. And they're just thinking if we go after them. Some of us going to die for not. We're going right. to. They probably knew they were going to surrender soon anyway. Right. So, so that that's the first the first engagement. Yeah. That you ever participated in. Yeah. Uh, and then did you guys get in any other gunfights while you were in Iraq on that first? Um, we did a. It wasn't. A gunfight. We ended up calling in artillery yeah. later on. A couple of days later, we went back, and that and that was again uh, just yeah, called in an artillery. But it wasn't a, a proper fight, if you like. Right. So you come out of Iraq. Did you do a couple of rotations? No, that was. I think. How did you get injured on there? What? Oh, I got injured in uh, 1997 oh, okay. in, a, in, a, in a car accident. Oh, you did? I was a passenger in the back of a Land Rover. Uh-huh. And uh, it's um, a lorry pulled out, in, like a truck yeah. pulled out in front of the Land Rover, span off the road, and then it rolled down the embankment. And it was a, a pretty bad. The lorry, a lorry driver, truck driver died. Uh, the, the driver of wow. our, our vehicle, Graham, he died. I was crushed and I got ejected out the back. Right. And I, uh, I was... Badly injured, so I had a, a broke my neck in three places, my back in seven places, dislocated my hip, broke a load of ribs. My, I had a tension, hemorrhagic thorax, broke my shoulder blade, my collar blown, fractured my skull, and had a subdural hematoma, so blood on the on the brain, which they had to operate on. Right. So I was in a bad way, and um, uh, yeah, and was in hot, and was in a coma. For self, the, the injuries uh, for about two weeks, and then I came out. And, uh, so how how long does it take you to recover from something well, like that? Do this you, is the uh, so this is 1997 in the dark yeah. ages. So yeah. back then it was I came out of the coma about another week in hospital. Then I get a phone call saying, "Oh, make sure you're back at work." At <laughs> so this is leading up to Seriously? Christmas. Back at work in January. So like three weeks, three weeks at home, and then back at work, and then it was like uh, zero rehab. <laughs> so it was, and then, and then uh, but being, I was what, 23 then, mm-hmm. 22, 23, and you just want to get back into the fight. Right. Um, and what I always say to to young people who are injured now is make sure you get rehabbed. Yeah. Make sure you don't, no one's going to thank you for getting back to work early. Yeah. Make sure you're fixed because right. there's still problem. I'm, 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 such wood, I'm fitting well. Yeah. Especially for my age and for what I've done. Yeah. And, but they're all like posture. Uh, hip problems, right? Or not hip, not hip problems, but hip mobility. Yeah, it's probably due to that to that accident, right? But uh, yeah, I was I was um, so five months later. Um, this is not an exaggeration, and I, I sometimes say this. This is a true story, and it doesn't mean that all the stories <laughs> I tell is bullshit. This one's true. So this is true. This is Everything true. Everything else is rubbish. This is a true story. But when I say this is a true story, it's normally like say it, like no, I'm not I'm not exaggerating any of right. this, and not that I do, but. I've always feel the need to say that. But five months later from, from time of injury, first parachute jump, and, I, and it's um, 25,000 feet. Right. Um, halo, halo jump onto, onto an exercise. Right. The difference between onto exercise and onto uh, a training jump is when we're doing training jumps, you just have your rock yeah. boxed out. But when it's onto like going into an observation post for two weeks, it's like, your rook's like heavy as hell, yeah. odd chipped, and it was like, here we go. Do you know what? I might have even been, I might have even been with a GPMG to so have a machine gun free falling as well. And I was just really thinking good. to myself, well, this is this is a good way to start it all off. But uh, but but again, what are you going to do? You're not going to refuse. Right. Are you good to jump? Yeah. Yeah. Even in your mind, you're saying, no, I'm not. 
Right. Like my neck, neck still hurts, my neck, back still hurts, my hip still hurts, but you're still into, but because you're young and stupid, you can't. Yeah, I'm good. So, I think that's something with uh, going back to one of our other our point of like controlling fear, and like I know what it feels like, and I think you know what it feels like, but. How do you how do you do it when you because we've we've had these reps and I'll explain the way that I think about it but I want to see how you think about it because when you know you things are things are going to be pear shaped right you know they're and they're they're going in a different direction you know that it's there's people are either going to be shooting at you you're going to be shooting people and it couldn't it it's not just that it's you're going to be jumping out of a plane at night. Or you're going to be jumping out of the back of a helicopter in the middle of, you know, the, the, the dark water at, you know, two o'clock in the morning. What's going through your mind before you make entry, before you cross the threshold, so to speak? I think, I think at different, different stages, mm-hmm. there's different thoughts. Right. And, and it's like, so there's the initial, like far from it, far from the... The furthest point yeah. is is more you think about your real life. Right. And this is really far removed. So this is before you've even left the base. Yeah. You think about your family. You think about, is my apartment clean? So if I die, <laughs> right. no one's going to think I'm a yeah. slob. Yeah, yeah. It's like, did did about, I sanitize it, the pornography in my foot yeah. locker? Yeah, there's like a the message. Yeah, put this yeah. hard drive into a missile and fire it at the sun. <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> there's, there's that sort of thing. And that's, and then it comes into, um, like the first the first phase, which you're thinking about the task at hand, right? And that's your problem solving. Mm-hmm. That's you. What am I going to do? Whether you're the commando or it's whatever your role is within that, and you, you're problem solving. The next next point is the apprehension apprehension of the, and this is where this is probably what we're, we're getting into is is going through. You're going through what could happen, mm-hmm. what might happen, and there's always a negative. And I think with most people, um, from a military perspective, it's it's not about you know no one really fears about dying. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's it's always about messing up. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you do right. That's the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. It's like when you skydive, mm-hmm. no one's thinking about oh what if my parachute doesn't open. They're thinking about the drills that I got to do. Oh, I hope I don't. I'm nervous because I don't want to mess this up and yeah. be the weak link. Performance anxiety. Type and then, thing. yeah, and then. And then the final thing is, this is it. And for me, it's when it all falls away. And once, like you say, whether it be a skydive, once you leave that ramp or when the red light comes on, it's like, finishes. And it's like you're in the moment. Mm-hmm. And then and then you leave. And then it's that rush of, now you're in the moment. Yep. Same as whether that be military things that you do. Right. You're now in the moment. And then it's probably like rapid problem solving, rapid reaction. So if you're free falling, if something goes wrong, how do I correct it? Yeah. If you're in a gunfight, something happens, you react, you see something, you react. And it's then in, it's completely in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think, I hope I don't describe that, is it's not tunnel vision. It's no. far from it. It's open vision. You're super sensitive to sight, sound, smell, everything. All your senses are popping away. In your, in your in the moment, whether like say free fall or whatever, and I think there are stories though. You know, when people talk about their um, 
first free fall or first moment in combat and things, when that comes at a cost, where you go, yeah. you, could, you don't remember it. You don't, you, some things are lost and some people uh, might freak out or might have a complete sensory overload and like freeze. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's, um, that's what happens. You know? um, but for most of the people we know, and because of, because of training, because of how the training system is, mm-hmm. that when certain military people get into those high stress situations, and it's very un- unusual for them to freeze or to completely flap out of control because the building has taken them to that point. Right. Whereas if you just picked someone off, oh, someone yeah. out and I dropped them into that, then it might be completely different. Yeah, I've, I've, I've explained that to a lot of people where, where I would build into these things even early, early in my life where I started doing things that were, were uncomfortable or adrenaline-based activities that would force me into a level of uncomfort where I had to control what I was doing. So, you know, climbing. Before there was a war, it was climbing and kayaking, like whitewater kayaking and spending a lot of time in adrenaline-based activities because I wanted to figure out how to, to focus and then get results under pressure. and. It's interesting, before the wars, there were some people that understood that. And there were some people that didn't understand that, what, why you would go and do something. It wasn't just because it was fun. It was because, oh, I have to actually teach myself how to do this. Because I saw it. I saw it in um, when I went to airborne school, which was around the same time you went to airborne school, give or take. Well, not really. I was five years away from you. But you go through these training courses and they're three weeks long and jumping out of a plane at that point really wasn't a big deal because you go through rep after rep after rep after rep and you're, you know, being hoisted up by the tower and dropped and you're just like, okay, let's fucking get on with it. It's kind of like, (laughs) it's kind of like, okay, enough with the buildup. It's a lot of foreplay. Like we got to get it on here. Right. And so by the time you get to that point, you're like, man, I'm so excited to do this. I I just got to get it done. Yeah. But you still saw people that were so hesitant and they were so scared. And there's like another group of people who are like, fuck, and this is awesome, right? And we're yeah. going to like jump out of a C5 or a C130 or something like that. And I never... I never got nervous after that point, like jumping out of a plane. I was just like, okay, whatever. Like we're, you know, stand up, hook up, move, move off the back ramp or through the side door or whatever it was. It was never, there was never fear again in any of those activities. It was like more of like, we got to go jump. And it became more of an inconvenience. Yeah, that's right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not like built up. It's not like, oh, oh my God, we're going to another jump tomorrow. It's just yeah. like, oh, uh. guys like, like yeah, and there's a lot of guys, I'm, I'm sure for the static, static line, 800 feet parachute jumps, don't like it. And it's, yeah. and it's, but it's, but yeah, you're right. It's not built up. It's not like, oh my God, we're going to do another parachute jump. It's just like, here we go. We're going to, it's the inconvenience of jumping into an operation or an exercise now. Yeah. It, it, and it always looked at, uh, and I looked at it, if it was a nice day, 
we were jumping into like a field, I'd be like, oh, that's cool. You know, and I'm light enough. Like I've always, it's like 150 pounds. If it was like a Hollywood jump and there was no, no equipment, nothing. Yeah. I'm like, uh, it's fine. I don't, I don't hit the hard, I don't hit the ground very hard. So it was, it was always those other things where you're looking at it and you're like, oh man, I got a lot of weight. That thing's going to suck, you know, or wherever you're going. But there was never another doubt or there's never another thought in my mind like, oh, I'm terrified to, yeah, to walk off of, the back ramp of this helicopter. Yeah, like, there's no, never what, another thought of it. Never thinking, oh, what if my parachute doesn't open? It's, not <laughs> no. it's just like, it's just about, you just embrace the suck of what's to come. That's what you're thinking yeah. about. It's like, oh, oh, I'm going to land and I'm going to have to like yeah. walk. We call it tabbing tactical advance to battle is like yeah. carrying weight and, and rock marching, basically. We, I'm going to have to tab like 20 miles when I land on the ground. That That's what you're thinking about. That yeah. thing is is just on, it's, and I, I hope now. I I, uh, I really hope that that's how it still is today because yeah. of the um, lack of aircraft availability, funding, things like that. Paratroopers don't jump as much as they should do, right. so hopefully there's not that element of it's an extreme thing now because mm-hmm. they don't do it so often. Everyone's like, "Oh, we're going to jump," so hopefully it's how, how it used to be, where people just don't like it and they just got to get on with it and they yeah. just do it. Well, wouldn't it be weird? Think about that. If, if so, you, you go back to where you're at with the Pathfinders, and what if you had this dude in the Pathfinders that was on the team? And did you guys do any static line, or was it all free fall? Uh, every line? now and again, you do a stat, static line for current season, right? And- so imagine the dude in the team room that was like super fired up about doing a static line jump. Like, come on, guys, this is awesome. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Can you imagine if there's that dude who's like, you know, yeah, we get a static line today, guys. This is awesome, man. Yeah. This is going to be great. We're going to static line. Nobody yeah. said that. Like after... Remember, while, we're, we're British. No one says that about anything. Yeah, like, that's well, fair. Yeah, yeah. that's... Yeah, you guys are too stoic. Yeah. Yeah, you're it's too fine. stoic in... But yeah, there's nobody like celebrating and high-fiving, like firing people up going, let's let's jump out of a, you know, this. It was like, oh yeah, cool. We got to go do this. And it was more like, oh God, we're going to sit on the tarmac. We're going to get JMPI'd, like bring a fucking book. Like, oh my God. Like well, it's just an inconvenience. Well, actually, I'm completely wrong about this. Um I don't know if it still happens, but you used to get a, what you call a green light warning order. Mm-hmm. So before every static line parachute jump, the, I'm not sure if it's commander or it's the lead parachute jump instructor reads this statement right. of you've got to, you're about to do a military parachute jump. And it's, it says, for want of a better word, if you, by not jumping, you're breaking the law yeah. and you'll be court-martialed. Yeah. So, it's like the, so that in itself is a bit of, hey, you've got to jump. No, if, and I think it came from World War II. Yeah, but the again, jump refusal. I hope, I hope, hopefully that still goes on because I think it's a good bit of tradition where yeah. really formal, you know, yeah. on behalf of the queen, if you don't jump, you're going to go, you're going to get kicked out. You probably just get, you know, probably get counseling now if you refuse yeah. to jump rather than kicked out. And, or you get a medal. Yeah. Like, oh, what's it for called? Courage. Um, what's it called? Um, courageous restraint or something. <laughs> oh yeah, you were, you were shining example. You know, you didn't, you didn't want to do something you didn't want to do. And you know what? You, 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 those bullies trying to make you jump out the airplane <laughs> and you do, and you stopped and you, and you were an example of everyone. And those bullies. A, yeah, here's a medal. Like, <laughs> you can be, you can do PR for us now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Isn't that funny though? If you think about the most mundane task, we were talking about this the other day where the, the most mundane task that wouldn't elevate your heart rate past 65 would give 
normal people cardiac arrest. Like it would, it would just, it would throw them into cardiac arrest. If you just took them out, put them into a situation where we're literally just doing a, a logistics effort. It's not, it's not even yeah. something that we're, we're, we're concerned with whatsoever. It's just like literally logistics. It's, we have to be here at this time. This is the mode of transportation. Okay, let's go do it. Yeah. And then that would kill most civilians. They would be like, I can't do this. There's like, when I say not, it, they wouldn't psychologically or physically be able to accomplish said task in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Well, maybe or maybe not. Because if you think about World War II, yeah. Um, it's all about, like I said earlier, about necessity. Yeah. And it drives the human body to, to do things it wouldn't normally do. Right. If you think of World War II, you have people who had normal jobs. Yeah. Then we're in global war, a little bit of training, and then perhaps they're flying over the channel to jump into Normandy. Yeah. And you're like, and they're doing it. And they've, like, compared to all the years of training we had, Right. It's been compressed into just a few weeks and saying, now you're going to be in a glider or now you're going to be in a... And they, they have to do it. They have to do it. It'd be interesting. I don't, personally, I don't think most civilians in this day and age could do that if we I don't went either. to a global yeah. war. But, yeah. it, but it is interesting that when, when people are forced into a certain situation, how we can rise to it and, and, and do the extreme. I, th- I think you'd have like a good percentage of maybe the listeners of Joe Rogan's podcast would be good with it. But I think yeah. there's, there's a huge percentage of the people. Realists, just, the realists are the hateful ones. Yeah, yeah. They're the ones who listen and probably give themselves a Chinese burn. Right, they're like, ah. They go to bed angry afterwards <laughs> and, and, yeah. I don't, and, and then comment on something. I don't know. Yeah. And, and when, I've, when I've looked back on a lot of the things, you know, Iraq, Iraq's kind of a blur in, in a lot of different ways because it's like four and a half years of just, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But I mean, we, I, I would be falling asleep in a car. Like, like if things weren't going on, I'd be like, man, I wish I could fucking recline the seat here and take a little nap because there ain't nothing going on. And uh, most people would be like, I, I can't psychologically or physically deal with, with being in this place whatsoever. And it's, it's, you get used to it. You just kind of get used to what's happening and things aren't... I, I remember Baghdad early on when things started really ramping up <clears throat> and the IED threat started yeah, really picking up. Yeah. yeah. It, took, it took a while to get used to it because you're like... But you're, you're, you're acclimating to the environment. But when you think about what we were used to on a, on a regular cadence... It was, there were IEDs going off everywhere all day long. You'd have black mushroom clouds across these, you know, in these cities and things would be blowing up all day, all day long. And then you'd have indirect, typically, you know, a few times a week, you'd have, you know, rockets and mortar pits going on. I, it was just, and you'd be sleeping, you'd be sleeping on your cot. Like, all right. And sometimes like for a while before the invasion, I remember I tried, I was like, I, when, when we were worried about the scuds, you remember that shit yeah, before yeah. that? I mean, it's, it's surreal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember sleeping with my body armor before then. 
and for like two nights or whatever it was. And then I, and then it dawned on me, I was like, I, I don't need this because if it lands, I'm not going to really, I'm not going to feel it either way. So I like put my body armor underneath my cot and like went to sleep and I never, never, never did it again. Like ever, ever after that. And and I remember, you know, when you would talk about uh, attack alarms going off and uh, from indirect fire. Yeah. And and I remember listening to people saying, oh, did you hear the alarm go off? And this was people outside of my job. Right. And they'd be like, oh, jump on the floor. And it was... Yeah, yeah. And, and I was thinking, well, I don't, I don't jump on the floor. Right. Because it's just like, it's just the inconvenience. You yeah. know, you, you pull your duvet up that little bit, the luxury yeah. of being in, in, a, in like in the, in the rear, so to speak, when you've got duvets and things, when yeah. there's people doing real soldiering in patrol bases who haven't got duvets and who are living it 24-7. But, you know, um, and and because again, if you hear it go off and jumping on the floor, it's it's done. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm not going, I don't advocate that. That was just my, my drill. So if anyone says, oh, you're, yeah, you're showing a bad example because, yeah. I I debated it a lot for a while because I was like, am I just lazy or, you know, I, I just was, accept it. Yeah, I just it's accept just it. like you know, yeah. you know, but the chances of a of a of a rocket landing on me in bed is pretty slim. Yeah, and and if it maybe if it if it did, it was meant to happen. Right, maybe and, yeah. I I had one land in a shower next to me. I had a mortar land in the shower next to me. It didn't go off. It was just stuck in the floor. Well, yeah. it was like there's just luck. I know just the like story. Sheer of, luck. There was a guy who was sleeping not that far away from me in a, a couple of blocks away in a certain place and. A, a motor round landed. He, he got up in the middle of the night and decided he needed to pee. Right. Went to the bathroom and a motor round landed by the by the end of his building and would have completely peppered him had he not woke up in the middle of the night and went for a wow. pee. And that's just, it's weird how life is, isn't it? Yeah. It takes you in certain directions. So when you, when you leave the Pathfinders, what do you go and do after that? So then I um, apply for um, Special Forces Selection. Did you did you get accepted on the first the first no, round? No, that was that was actually the third time. So I tried it in the year two thousand two thousand one, right. and this was my third and final go. Wow! And it was I was it, it it was I'd signed so I'd finished Iraq, had my had my fight if you like, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad about. And then I met a friend of mine who was in the in the in the SES right. And I, and I was chatting to him and, and I said, oh, I'm getting out. I've signed, I'm going to go on the circuit. I'm going to earn loads of money. Yeah. As everyone was doing at that time. Right. And he was like, what are you doing, man? Just just put your, put your papers in to come and try try and get into the to the regiment. Right. And if you fail, then get out right. and work on the circuit. But if you pass, there's a whole, it's, you don't understand what's beyond. Right. And uh, and I was like, oh. and it was a lot easier back then. Now you have to do lots of pre-courses and, yeah. uh, and, and things. and um, so I came back and, and said to the the officer commanding, Pathfinders, I want to sign back on, but I'll only sign back on if you let me go on on SAS selection. Right. And he's, he then said, yeah, you can do that. But if you fail, you're not coming back to Pathfinders. You're going back to the... So everything was... Oh, like shit. Everything, I'd put all, everything, all, my, all the cards on the table. Yeah. Like, if I fail, I'm going back to a parachute battalion. And because I'd been in Pathfinders for so long, they'd probably take a... Like, it wouldn't be a good place for me. Right. So my last year in the army would be would be hell, or I'd be in a bad place uh, mentally. So then I, 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 so for the third time, went on selection and passed. 
and uh, and then I and then I served until I retired in twenty uh, twenty twenty September twenty twenty. How much can you talk about selection? I think that's it. That's, yeah, that's all I'm going to go on. I'm not. I don't want to. Um, as you know, that I've I've wrote the book. Yeah, uh, one man in right, which talks about something I did in 1919. Right. And I'm working with the Ministry of Defense as we speak to to do do it properly. Yeah. To release this book so there's no one, there's nothing, there's no sense of information or anything. So that's as far as I'm willing to talk about my my life in in 22nd Special Air Service Regiment. Right. So. Well, it, and it's it's interesting because and and I should I should add that that the the book one man in is just about that one day. Different. One day. So for anyone now on the edge of their seats, it's, it doesn't talk about anything that I did right. while serving in, in, the, in, the, in the unit. It just talked about one, that, thing, that I, one, one thing I did that we all yeah. know I did. Right. Well, it, because the, the, the SAS is, is very secretive, right? and, but there are some really high-profile guys that are out there that have been you know, part of the SAS. Yeah. Um, you know, Chris Ryan is is one I think that comes to comes to yeah. mind. Where did you read Bravo Two Zero? And did that have some type of impact as to your career progression? Well, Bravo Two Zero came out when I was um, or I'd already I was in Two Para, yeah, Second Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, when they came out, and I, I read it already. I read it then, and it, yeah, it was it was great. It was yeah, I cut through that in like one day. It was it's a it really great, good, and I'm and I know. That lots of lots of people have joined the army and then and then the SAS because of reading that book. Mm-hmm. And I read Chris Ryan's The One That Got Away. Yeah. Really good read. Really good. Enjoyed it. And um Have you ever met him? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah. He's a he's a friend of mine. Is he really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Is he uh um, from the same place? We sound we sound the same. Yeah. So if we if we get together, we have to be wary of because what when two Geordies get together, right now I'm trying to speak as clear and as slow as possible. And I thank you for that. And it and it starts speeding up, mm-hmm. speeding up, and then people would be hearing us talking and go, "What are they? What are they doing?" Right. I don't know, but um, yeah, he's he's a good guy. Is he? Yeah. And and what he did was is is fairly inspirational. Uh, again, he, he it's the longest on foot escape and evasion in, in history, I think, on foot or in the, in the regiments anyway. Right. So. But it, and it's it, the book was really good. And did you watch the movie too? With, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I just well, I can't believe I, you didn't watch the movie. Yeah, because it was I, I was into the system then, and right. All I, I don't know which because I didn't. They did, they did the Bravo Two Zero the movie, and I yeah. think they did the one that got away as well. Did they? I don't and know. I, 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 I didn't so. see that one. I just and, saw Bravo Two Zero. I don't know. I don't, the only one I know of, because I saw a clip, and it's and you've got them running in the in the desert. Yeah, and it's got Phil Collins playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like well, they had. Um, and that's a bit weird. I, I yeah. Well, like, he's British. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, he is. But maybe I mean that to me is in say hey. Chris, we're going to make a movie and there's going to be the scene where Phil Collins is playing and you're running in the night. I'd be like, eh, that's like a dream I had once. I, I didn't like it. Yeah, but I would like to see that. I would like to see like a, a Phil- one-man CQB montage with Phil Collins playing in the background. Phil Collins is great though. He's, yeah. yeah. Is. Genesis is like a thing. It is. I, I mean, if anyone, if any uh, young people are looking on who? Genesis? Right. You know, it's like a, Suggested listening. He's, isn't he, Sir Phil Collins? He might be. Yeah, I think he, he is. Be. I mean, he should be if he's not. He should be. Yeah. Like, well, that that could be a recommendation. And, he, and, he, and his daughter's his daughter is it Lily? I think she's rocking it on lots of things, and I think a lot of people don't know that it's his daughter. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't. She's I, in a lot of 
I'm not sure what. So if that's all we're going to talk about as far as like your entry into this. Yeah. I do have a few other questions though. Okay. okay. And we Which can edit this out. If we can edit like, them. Yeah. So when, when you estimate your, 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 your time in service and I would think like the most impactful because you you get some titanium in your, do you have a titanium arm? Yeah. Yeah. From my, uh, yeah. Basically from my elbow to shoulders, there's a titanium rod in there. In, you don't talk about getting shot in the book. No. But you have been shot. Yeah. And with what? It was with a, um, from a, like a, a drag, a Dragunov, yeah. assessed a Dragunov sniper rifle. And so did that shatter yeah, it went that th- bone? Through the back of my arm, shattered my humerus, which is a funny bone. Right. Um, was it funny then? Or? No, but I give them like a dirty look. Yeah. You know, like, it was like <laughs> I've got this thing. <laughs> You call it, <laughs> people are going to cringe now. Um, when I'm in a bad mood or someone says something I don't like or whatever, they get the, what they call the cat's ass. Right. Cat, cat's ass. Yeah, yeah. I do that with my lips. Right. I probably give them a dirty look because you just shot me. But, but. What's it I, like being shot? But this is the strange thing. Now it, it hurt badly. Mm-hmm. It hurt. You don't say. Yeah, it hurt. When it goes through that bone. And I get if people say, oh, when, when people get shot, they don't feel it. I, 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 completely buy into that if it doesn't go through a bone. Right. But once it goes through a bone and shatters it, it hurts. But it wasn't a feeling of, of it was like banging your funny bone and times it by 10,000. Right. That's what it felt like. But here's the, here's the messed up bit. Going back into junior para being indoctrinated and things, mm-hmm. it was a sense of satisfaction. It's like, right. oh, I've just been shot. That's pretty cool. Because <laughs> that's what we. That's like, in, in the back of my mind, that's playing is like I've been shot. That's cool. It's like a take. I hope I don't lose my arm. Yeah. I I, I, and and my arm was hanging and it was hanging by the tricep. Right. But I could, having some medical knowledge, I could I could wriggle my fingers. Yeah. And in my mind, again, just thinking that's not that bad because I can wriggle my fingers. I mean, right. it's uh, in my mind. I was thinking I'm going to keep my arm. But it, it not only went into your arm. It went in. Didn't it go into your side too, or was no, it only your? Okay, no, no. yeah, but um, yeah, but that's a strange thing. It's like it's like a thing of like, and I think most young soldiers maybe what you you kind of want to get shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like a thing, isn't yeah. it? It's like oh, I've been shot. Yeah, it's like that the movie. It's the movie gunshot where like it's it's always right there, right? Yeah. Where it goes oh, the, oh, it's through and through. Oh man, yeah. I got got shot in the and it's a it's yeah. it's that thing where you're like, oh, wouldn't it be sweet if I got shot? But it didn't really fuck me up all that bad. Like, yeah. like you really do think yeah. about that. Where yeah. you're like, I really want it just yeah, for the be experience. Careful what you wish for, isn't it? And yeah, like, yeah. And even some people, when like, again, people might say, "Oh, I was in an IED and I didn't like it." You kind of want it to happen. You kind of want to be tested. Yeah. If that's what you, it's like, and 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 sometimes death is a price that you say, do you know what? I don't mind dying. I think there's lots of people who haven't seen combat. Right. Who would have said, I will sacrifice my life to experience mm-hmm. that combat. And, and, and I think that's part yeah. of training, mindset, everything comes to it. We, I think that's a, a good point. You need to go pee pee. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> take a little break, come back. So you get shot. Yeah. Did you put a tourniquet on your arm? No, I didn't. No? Pressure um, dressing? I wanted to. Yeah. And it was this whole thing about the. Um, you know, when you have tourniquets in each right. each pocket on your arm, and the reality of it was, I couldn't I couldn't get it. Yeah, and then so from then from 
from that moment onwards, I'd always carry a tourniquet on the on my front and I would right. urge everyone to do the same. Um, but that was a blessing because I got myself behind cover, um, made people aware that I'd been hit. Yeah. They didn't put a tourniquet on, didn't think about it. And then when I got into a vehicle, uh-huh. there was a there was a, a young officer in front of the vehicle said, oh, shall I, shall I put a tourniquet on? And I said, um, don't, yeah, don't bother. Because if I needed it, I would have bled out by now. Right. That was a good move because the surgeon after looking at my arm said, hey, if you, just because no one put a tourniquet on, that saved your arm. It would have trashed really? it. So it was a blessing. Um, wow. That's it, crazy. It's yeah, it's it's strange how things happen. But. Yeah. So, what was what was happening? So I'm assuming it was a through and so it went all the way through. Yeah. And then there was probably a significant amount of uh, fragmentation. So the bullet probably split into pieces the, as it broke the bone, or was there? Did it, it go all the way through and just kept through, going? Carry, so it was FMJ. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean. Yeah, it was lucky. It was the, the um, in uh, in Headley Court in UK, the, the specialist said it's amazing that the three main nerves running running down my arm weren't weren't compromised. Yeah, which which allowed me to then carry on <clears throat> carry on in service. Right, which is good. And how long did it take you to recover from that? Nine nine months. Nine, nine months, months. Nine months of rehab. Wow. And it was really a, yeah good a really good good group of people who were working on my arm and and got me back in. In fighting shape, yeah. That, what, what's that recovery like? How much when you're because they had to replace the bone with a titanium rod, right? Yeah, the fact it's some it's some uh, like some sort of rod that allows the bone to like grow through, I believe. Okay, and it was so it was like that the bone grows back, and mm-hmm. and then it's and it was just a slow 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 process of right getting movement. Yeah, and and the only risk to it when when they when they did the surgery said, look, you you sort of out the woods, as long as it doesn't get infected for the the immediate time after the um, operation, then mm-hmm. then you're going to keep your arm, which is which is good. Was that the only time you'd been shot? Uh, yes. Yeah. Any um, any other experiences with like frag or things like that from grenades or IEDs? Just uh, you know, in the close proximity, but no, nothing that required me to go to hospital. Right. But since we can't cover some of the things that I really like to cover, maybe that's uh, in the future. That's the future. I do have a series of questions, which is your time in service. You used a couple different rifles. Yeah. What was your favorite rifle? Um, and you don't have to placate to the American crowd. You can say like whatever British pile of shit. I mean, sorry, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I'm trying to think now with uh, what because um, you like those bullpup things, right? Those the Brits like no, that, we don't. That back, let me, back let me get one thing straight. <laughs> no one likes that, and anyone who does say they like it. Do you know what? Do you know? Do you know what the? Do you know what, what the? I don't know even know what they call it now. It's like the SA80. Yeah, and, and all these guys and all these officers and these generals are probably going to be like, "Oh my god, he's talking about the SA." Right. Um, it's terrible. Do you know what it is? It's like if 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 jazz music was a weapon, 
<laughs> that's what it is. That's what it is because it's this minority that say they love it and they don't love it. No one likes, no one likes jazz music. I mean, it's just a lie. It's it's, just, it's the same with this SA80. There's all these specials going. Oh, it's super accurate. It's really good. It's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I've never understood that. I've never understood that. It was, that, it was that terrible. Weapon. Everyone knew it was terrible. Oh. And then we just kept on tweaking it. It's like right. the stubbornness of someone yeah. going, instead of just, if you look at the police and, and, and other units within the, within the, the British system, they've changed their weapon systems yeah. umpteen times. But the British army just keep tweaking this piece yeah. of shit. <laughs> and, and, and they've still got it now. And it's like, it's been, it's outlived anyone in military service. It's, it's, yeah. it's, and it's terrible. It's like this. It's no, no, terrible. It's so bad. It's just like when you, when you, you probably saw a lot of bad commanders do this, where they make this really bad decision and it's so bad that if it's a little bit bad, they'll say, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll just change the plan because we'll it's working. It. Because yeah. it's so bad, you can't lose fa- face and you've just got to keep, got to keep plugging away at it, pl- plugging away at it. It's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. Yeah. yeah I mean, it even looks, I mean, one of the key it things. It looks with, bad too. Yeah. And that's, a, and that's yeah. an important thing. Yeah. I don't care what anyone says. If it looks good, it's half the battle. Mm-hmm. So if it was a piece of shit, but it looked badass, you know, yeah, we can live with that. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about the the British pistol? What, what, did you guys use Browning high powers? Yeah, at the time that was the Browning high power, and they were so old, like like shaky and oh yeah, it, it did the job when I needed it to. Yeah, but we had to like yeah, but it was. But it's still not a bad like e- even it, today I mean, like the the Browning high oh, power is really not at, a um, bad pistol. It's better than the Beretta. Springfield Armories have done a, a new yeah. design of it, and so of um, F, FN, mm-hmm. and it's just a, it's just a nice. It feels nice. It yeah. works nice. I think the problems with the the Brownings we had they were just so old. Yeah. Um. So realistically, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um. Accurate, right? Beyond seven yards, really. No, and I remember the first time I fired a, a six-hour mm-hmm. P two two six, right? And I was still in Pathfinders at the time, and and it was this feeling of joy of thinking, "Wow, oh. it's actually <laughs> the bullets are going where I aim. Yeah. It's like brilliant, <laughs> and it's uh, it was like a, a good moment and a, a good weapon. But. Yeah, it was a huge upgrade. I remember going from because we had the Beretta, which. It's just the worst. It, 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 there's so many different things that I hate about Mel the Beretta. Gibson's got a lot to answer for. On yeah, that, he really it? does. He made that yeah. 92F like a. I, I think that was based on, and I could be wrong, but it was based on because as a kid, I wanted that gun. Yeah, I, I wanted a black Beretta 92F like Mel Gibson. Heck yeah! It was just like that was the, the and and I'm sure that that influenced the the U.S. military into. Um, well, I think what I it think was it, was the Italians were getting ready to. Uh, uh, downsize our base footprint. And I think the Reagan administration negotiated a contract for the military through Beretta right. if they if they approved through the Italian government to not decrease our, our base footprint. I, I think that was the this this exchange basically that they put out. Uh, I mean, Brennan makes a great shotgun. Like, they're, yeah. they're like, I mean, they're, it's a great company, and yeah, yeah, great, yeah. And I know some, yeah. some really nice people that, who work for them, and it's, it's good. But I hate that pistol. Yeah. I, I hate it so much. There's like so many things that I don't like about that pistol that I can't really go in to all the things that I hate about that because that would just sound really kind of um, complaining. Um, yeah. Because once there's a better option out there the military at times can be really slow yeah. to adopt those things. Whereas once the Glock came out yeah. and it started 
replacing the revolvers, the, a lot of the service pistols that were out in law enforcement, we naturally wanted to to move over to a Glock, and it wasn't until li- much later. And the the officers fought it tooth and nail. Like yeah. they were like, "This is a great pistol," and it's like, "What do you know about fucking shooting a pistol?" Yeah, it, I mean, it's terrible. It's not, terrible. You know, yeah, and. I've I've often wondered what the, it, it, change is difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, and as you start, you know, looking at the weapons that you guys you've used over the the course of your career, what what's the best pistol you've been able to shoot so far? Like in the in the last like ten years. I mean, it's there's so many. The, the trouble is now is we've moved on so so much further and, right. and leaps and bounds there's so many great pistols out there yeah <laughs> I think um, two pistols um, spring to mind the first are, is the staccato yeah uh, your, your staccato yes it fires a, a really nice to fire it's beautiful and um, re, um, user friendly yeah again for traditionalists good and the other one is the um, uh, the Zev Zev Hypercomp, and 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 it's common knowledge that I, I work with oh, yeah. work, work with Zev, but the Hypercomp again, the um, thing people need to understand is Zev on Glock. People think that Zev modify Glocks. Yeah. Zev have their own weapon systems. But yeah, the yeah. Zev OZ9 Hypercomp, right? It's like a, a dream to fire, and it was, and it was, um, and credit to Zev, they they were um, they said to, I said I want to do something with this sort of pistol mm-hmm. with their X pistol. And they went, well, you know what, have you, have you ever fired an OZ-9? I was like, I have not. Right. And then they said, well, what we want you to do is do the, the Pepsi challenge, come up to our headquarters and, and go through a set of pistols. And they were, you know, they didn't have to, and they, but they, credit to them, they said, if you want to do it with X-Pistol, we'll still do it because it's your gun. Right. But we feel that when you experience firing the Hypercom and the OZ-9, you'll see the difference. And you know, I, I saw the difference. It's, it's a great pistol. Yeah. And I, I would 100% agree. I've, I've owned a couple of Zabs in the last uh, several years. <clears throat> One, they, make, they, they made some incredible aftermarket products early on. So, and, and they're not sponsoring the podcast. So I'm yeah. saying and I that. Don't, I don't get paid yeah. to. I, I, this is all from, from my heart. That's, it's like, yeah, the, yeah I, I'm working with Zev, not for Zev. The, the, the staccato to me is. And I, I have like different methodologies when I look at shooting. Um, I have the things I like to shoot at the range, like that are the things I just, I love. I like, I like shooting race guns. I really like them. And then I have things that I carry for utility. Yeah. Right. So I think you, you fit the tool for the track or that fit the, fit the, fit the tool for the problem. A lot of guys are like, no, you should only shoot the thing that you carry. And I'm like, ah, dude, but shooting's fun. Yeah. Like I in you can have more than one, so why not? Yeah. So I switched from the Glock 43 to the the SIG, this thing. That's why I yeah. got it out. Yeah, great. It's great. It's a um, 365 XL. Yeah, it's, it's actually just the 365. Oh, okay. So it's in the holes. That's how I didn't if everyone yeah. yeah. So my other question is, do you believe in carrying a pistol without a light? Without a light. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, so to answer your question is, if 
if you can put a light on your gun, mm-hmm. then you should always have it right. on your gun. Right. It's like if it's, but again, through cost, availability, all those sort of conditions, then, yeah. then it's not, if you have to carry a gun without a light on it, then it's not the end of the world. But if, if you can do it, then do it. Because you could argue, and I know there's probably data to support this, I don't know, but if you're going to have to draw your uh, pistol in a self-defense situation, it's probably going to be in a low-lit environment, car lot, at night. Mm-hmm. You can, it, well, it's going to be at night. So it, it sort of stands to reason that you should have a, a light on you, on your carry, carry gun. Yeah, I, I think so too. So when I see guys carrying their, their everyday carry and I see they, they don't have a light, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. A lot of guys carry the light separate. I've seen that before too, where they're like, well, I want the separate light. I'm like, uh, maybe I'm probably just a little bit too lazy for that because I just want the light there. So yeah. I, never, I don't forget it. And, and I also don't want to have two separate items moving around. And life always throws these things at us. It's the, the one time that you haven't got that light on you mm-hmm. is the one time it all happens in a pitch black environment or a dark environment. You think, oh, it's, every day I carry that light. Yeah, and, it's Murphy's and, Law. Yeah, and now I haven't got one. So yeah. Yeah, so I... I carry, so I switched over completely to the SIG now. I have, I yeah. still have Glock 43s. I, I still enjoy, kind of, I'm in the process of just phasing them all out. But what I like to shoot when I'm at the range is the Staccato yeah. series. Where, you know, I've got, a, I've got a few of them. And if I'm selecting, <clears throat> the reason that I have lights on everything too is because it also gives me some front end weight for managed right, recoil. Yeah, yeah. So I'll use that, 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 the staccato, um, is it, I think it's the P, but I've got the comp on that with yeah. the flashlight. You shot that thing and yeah. that's like probably the finest shooting pistol I've ever, I've ever shot. It's just so period. smooth, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it just, it comes out. Yeah, you know, you, yeah, it's, it, it, what, what they've done with that gun is they, they've made it nice. It's nice to fire. That's what people, yeah. people who never fired a gun before and we saw it on the range and they grab it and then you, they take hold of that, and then they and then they fire it, and they think it's really nice. Mm-hmm. It's not like a brutal experience where no. it's not pleasant. And and to some people, firing a handgun or any gun is is again it's a, it's a, it's in at the deep end. Yeah, it's just like this blast going off in your hand. And you're in complete control of something that can kill someone, and and it can intimidate people. But that staccato was just so nice and just flows flows Fluid. out. And and that's the same thing. Is uh, we have to get you on is the. Uh, Hypercom, it's the same thing. It just, it's just like, but, I gotta, like, I but it's just it. like super smooth. And, and I think that's what's important to people, especially people who maybe don't want to own a gun, but feel like they're up because of the times that we're in, have to own a gun or should own a gun. Right. Because, because they feel threatened. And it's, and that's the dangerous area of where people are buying guns who don't train with them, don't, don't really want to own one. And then if they go to a range and it's going to a range could be like going to a gym where there's a lot of intimidating personalities there who've got always got lots of advice, some of it not good, some right. of it not safe. So it's, uh, I think, uh, having the right firearm and, and enjoying the experience is, is, is really important. Yeah, it, it, and which is leading me into my next, my next portion of this conversation, which is... I've had this conversation with a lot of British guys in the past where 
the lack of access to firearms when you guys specifically are, are training. Um, do you agree? Do you agree with that? Or do you not agree with it as far as you, know, you you're, you were serving in probably the yeah. highest capacity, uh, but you had limited access. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I think, I think the, the firearms and the, so within the military, they should be more, more available. Right. And again, that's a lot of it is to do with uh, cost, but more so with, like you say, no one likes change. Right. And I think British soldiers should be spending a lot more time on the range than, yeah. than they do. Um, because it's, again, it's this, people don't think about things. You, when you say to a British soldier or any soldier, hey, you're, you're training to kill someone, mm-hmm. that doesn't really come up much. You, they go to the range to pass tests. Right. They go to the range to shoot targets. Right. They don't say you're going to a range to train to kill someone. Right. And I think that makes you fo- think about it a bit more. You think, I need to be able to do this. And I, and I do think that um, it, it doesn't matter what unit, that, but British soldiers, the British military, should spend more time on the range. Because what happens is when, it's not when, it's not about shooting someone and high-fiving each other and saying, good job. It's when they miss. It's when someone shoots someone they're not, or someone or something they're not supposed to shoot. That's when it all comes back. And then people say, well, maybe we should have spent more time on the range. Maybe we should have done things a bit differently. It's always the failure, the failures that make us address the problem. And, and I think, um, yeah, I just think uh, it, within the military, they should spend more time on the range. Um, but in regards to accessibility to firearms in UK, I think it's just a big um, an issue. And it's the same as giving access to fire, making firearms more accessible to people in the UK. It's like taking away from them mm-hmm. in the US. Yeah. It's the two countries run on different track lines and, right. it, and it's, it's, it, it wouldn't be a, a workable solution. So it's just keep it as it is, but within the police and military, just increase the uh, access. Access then, yeah. I, I, I was wondering about this because spending some time on the, on the range with both Australian and the British SAS guys, um, there's a noticeable difference most of the time as to yeah. the way that we shoot. And because we have access to guns anytime we want them for the mm-hmm. most part in the States. And we shoot a lot. Uh, we shoot comps, we shoot three gun, we shoot all kinds of different competition. Yeah. And, and I love my, my, my brothers from the Australian SAS guys. So if you're listening to this, please don't hold me, uh, I mean, hold me accountable for it. But man, they, they were capable, but they definitely weren't at the same level. Yeah. And, did you guys notice that in from the from the British SAS perspective? Could you guys shoot instantly at the same level as like your counterparts from America, or did you think that they were a bit ahead? Again, I'm going into areas I don't want to talk about. <laughs> no, that- okay, that's good. Um, do you think that America's? I'll, I'll frame it up a different way. Do you think that? Um, American service members having more access to firearms makes them uh, better uh, shooters in general as far as the international shooting capability of special operations. Yes, yeah. It, it, and I think it's a natural thing. If if you've been brought up doing something, right, you're going to be better at it. Um, yeah, it's a, it goes without... Yeah, it goes, yeah. It's, it's fairly obvious. Well, and I... Which, which is my... It's a follow-on question, which is, 
Do you think societies that limit firearms or access to firearms also start to deteriorate their warrior culture? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is the, the, the thing you said there, warrior culture, because that, we go, if we use the term circle back, isn't that what everyone says? No one circle is? back, yeah. We'll circle back to the start of this podcast about right. junior para. Mm-hmm. That was the warrior culture and that was getting the mindset and I think now that's what I'm that's what I'm always fearful of now is how we joining the army isn't about jump, young men wanting to jump out of airplanes and kill people it's about young men getting a job right and getting oh yeah it's going to we're going to go into this environment you're going to get job opportunities and further your education and then which leads to success later on in life it's not this pure instinct of why do you want to join the army because I want to go to war right because I want to do the business I want to I want to kill the queen's enemies. Right. It's the losing sight of that original picture, which in, ter- it in turn deteriorates this sort of mindset mm-hmm. of, of, of combat soldiers because they're just in it to get a job. They're just in it for a, a career rather than to an adventure. Mm-hmm. Well, it... <sighs> And when we think, I think as, as a, you know, the allied nations, we look at these things. I think we think about them very similarly because we spent a lot of time in the same place, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, across the Middle East and Southeast Asia, where, you know, defending the nation from, uh, terrorists or, uh, any country alike, that, that's a very honorable profession that we should yeah. be promoting from within our society. I think we should be emphasizing and investing in in the warrior culture for the for quite literally the safety of our future. Yeah. It's I think it's I think it's it's a it's a propaganda campaign that's ultimately manipulated by our enemies to put out anything otherwise. Yeah. Like if people think the Russians or the Chinese are our friends and they're always going to be our friends, they live in a, in a, in a fucking dream world. Yeah. So when, when I hear these things where we don't have to train men to kill. Yeah. You're living in a fucking fantasy world. Because they're doing it. Yeah. If it's important to our enemy, it's important to us. Yes. And that's what we should be looking at. And we have to be better than they are. Yeah. So I look at these, and it typically comes from one section of our United States. It comes from our a portion of our representatives. I heard something about it today, where you know people were defending um, the Chinese because of the the Olympics. They're defending some of the actions. I'm like, are you guys on the payroll? I, I was just the yeah. only thing I could think of is, are you guys on the Chinese payroll because you're defending a foreign country that has literally zero investment in our success. They're quite possibly actively, no, they are. They're actively pursuing control or control measures against us every day internationally. And you're, you're a representative. You're, you're an elected official on the payroll, the United States taxpayer, and you're defending somebody else. And it like, I can't help but think this is a, is it large scale information more and at times I think that we're not waking up to, I guess, how manipulative and how significant uh, our enemies are. Yeah. 
in controlling information. That's a more of a statement than it is a question. But do you see parallels in information as far as like deterioration of the the warrior class and more derogatory information towards them? Do you see that in in, in Britain the same as you see here? I, I suppose I don't say it from the from the political establishment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't say like we don't say that as much as much or at all as we do in the United States, but. There is that, it is the whole media, the whole, it's just everything. And maybe maybe they're being really clever about it. It's just, it seems to be coming in from every angle, whether it be social media, whether it be mainstream media, whether it be schooling, education. Young people are getting hit, bombarded by from every direction mm-hmm. to, to become, dare I say it, better prey. Yeah. To be easier. Right. To be softer targets. Uh than, than, than whoever we may fight, uh, fight against. It, it, and it, it's just chipping away at this, at this block to make it softer and softer and softer. Does that make sense? I don't no, know. It, makes, I, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I think about it from the context of we should be constantly pursuing the, the elegance of being tough. Yeah. Because there's a way that you can... You can be an example. You can be tough. Yeah. And you can lead. And you can be, you know, you you can dedicate your life to the art of war. And you don't have to be an asshole. That's right. And it's this whole thing of we 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 want we people feel comfortable with the, whatever nation you're in, with their with their soldiers being able to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. But on the same the same people feel uncomfortable when they say, oh, the military are doing this in training. Oh, that's out of order. They shouldn't oh, be doing yeah. that. Yeah. But they still, but they, 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 they want their cake and they want the cake and eat it sort of thing. They want to, um, they, they want it, they want everything. They, they, they want everything to be done within their, their mm-hmm. sort of moral, moral code, but also have a, an effective military fighting force. And the two don't marry up most of the time. So, it should be a case of the military have to do their thing. And, and you know what? You don't need to know what's going on because they're right. doing their thing. Because strangely, if, if the military fail, then the civilian population are going to be up in arms saying, why did they fail? That's not acceptable. Well, they fail because you've restricted their budget. You've restricted their training capabilities because of health and safety and human rights or whatever you want to throw in there. To, yeah. to just make things. But the other problem as well is maybe we've gone too far. Maybe the war's over because now the people, dare I say, who might be in charge and calling the shots now have been molded and manipulated by the system. Right. So now even if he said to the, to whatever army, do what you want in training. We don't care. You're allowed to, if someone dies, sure. they die. It's fine. Then but they'd be going, oh, we don't want to do that. That might upset X or Y or Z or whatever. So, right. So now it's, now it's like, how do we, how do we uh, change it? Maybe we can't. Well, I hope, I hope that we can. I think because uh, I, I, I. Oh, so just going way off track. Have you? Can you ever remember? Can you? Can you? Uh, did you see Demolition Man? Yeah, of course. Have you yeah. seen it recently? No. no well, what, what what people need to do? This is recommended viewing. Right. Is go back and go watch back it. Go back and watch it, and it's. 
it's really sort of scary that whoever whoever wrote it and did it, it's like it's looking to the future. Right? There's this society, like if you say something bad, you get a warning or penalty. Everyone's got to dress the same. Everyone's got to talk the same. They go to the same place to eat. They everything, but it's and then bad dude, bad like bad dude comes Wesley Snipes. He's like terrorist from old comes around and starts wreck, wrecking havoc and that's it. So they have to defrost Sylvester Stallone. That's to, right. So they have to bring someone back from the past because he's the only person who's <laughs> that's capable right, of dealing. Yeah. But here's You're the right. kicker. Here's the kicker. Wesley Snipes, Simon Phoenix is the is the is the character. Yeah. He isn't the true enemy. The true enemy of the liberal leaders who bring Simon Phoenix back from defrost to then fight these inconvenient protesters mm-hmm. who live underground. Isn't that weird? It is weird. It's, um, I mean, just, it's so many levels. It's a, it's a great movie and it's... Wesley, it's, types has been able, Wesley Snipes has been able to teach us so much he's, yeah, as, a, he's, as an actor. Yeah. I mean, that look, again, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it. I think he's got an orange t-shirt. Do you have a photographic dung, memory? Dung, dungarees. Yeah, do you have I, a photographic I do, I do memory? I for particular fashion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's like a good look. It, Maybe it's something I should uh, bring back. Because your recall yeah. on stuff is crazy. You, you've referenced things in the last couple of weeks where I'm like, how in the fuck do you remember that? So well, you I probably have messed to... up all the, all the facts and figures at the start of this podcast. <laughs> so they might be a bit blurry, but I, remember, but I can remember what Simon Phoenix's <laughs> dress code is. That's really why, you know... Um, you know, maybe why, yeah, there's lots of useless information in here, but the, the important stuff isn't around. So, so what's, what's next? What's next for you? What are you doing next? Oh, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, I had, I had some plans and, 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 uh, things and COVID like with many other people yeah. sort of kicked it into touch. But, um, so now I'm out, I retired in September, 2020 and I've, uh, written a book called One Man In, mm-hmm. which is, um, as we speak with the Ministry of Defence and right. hopefully it'll get cleared. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. I, I, I want to, like, from the very get-go, I wanted to do this properly. Mm-hmm. And I said to the uh, to my commanders, can I do this? And they said, yes, just work with disclosure. Then that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So if it never comes out, it never comes out. Right. Um, but if it, hopefully, by the time this goes to where, it might have been, it might have been cleared. So right. from, my, from my mouth to God's ear, that's happened. But, um, so there's that. And then maybe, um, Maybe start working for this company called um, Black Rifle Coffee. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. Yeah, you know Andy Stumps, the CEO. I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, so there's that. There's also um, do some work with Zev. So yeah. we're releasing the Zev Craighead this year. Yeah, which is a, which is a awesome. collector's piece, and then right. and we're going to do more uh, Zev product where we we talk about like what would I carry and why. And, and how it looks, and, and through my experience, if, you know, what, what both 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 pistol outside the waistband, inside the waistband, and AR platforms. Right. You know, what, you know what I carry away, and then um, and then I'm I'm getting into the hunting, mm-hmm. yeah, the yeah, hunting piece, which is yeah. which is brilliant. With the field um, ethos guys, yeah, they've been they've looked after me really well, and yeah. met some great people. Um, you know, I was I was honoured to to go to the the SCI show yeah, yeah. And, and the dinner there. And, so uh, uh, little Brit, uh, Longoria, oh yeah, win that Diana Award. Yeah. What a what a what a great lady. What a what a, I and mean, she takes a lot of funny old things. She takes a lot of heat because she's what because she's a woman because mm-hmm. she's good looking 
And she's and she's nice. and then so that's an easy target. Let's let's she gets so much hate, yeah. but you know what? She just does her thing, and and she highlights the, you know, what hunting is really about. And it's and to me, I I, I really picked up on what she was saying, and, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm glad now she's a she's a friend of mine. So. Yeah, it, it, we had this really interesting interaction at Shot Show because we were there and we were there with uh, Field Ethos guys. Um, you know, Jason and Alan and, you know, my buddy Baker and everybody's there. And we went up to uh, a suite at the Trump because we were, we were all staying there. And so it was like my buddy, Jason Everman, who is a bassist for Nirvana yeah. and Soundgarden. And I'm and, kicking myself. I told and, you that. <laughs> and he's wearing like a Carhartt jacket yeah. and like a ponytail. And then it's like Don Jr. and yeah. Alan I was and at, you had and everybody. Aviation. <laughs> Like sweatshirt sweat or the long sleeve yeah, t-shirt. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and I'm, I'm staring across at Jason yeah. and going, who is where, that? Where do I know that guy from? Yeah. Where do I know that? And I, I didn't say anything. I'm like, where do I Because you don't want to go up to people and no. say, where do I know you from? Because most people in that room were, were somebody. Yeah. And, and, and you don't want to hassle them going, oh, where do I think I know you? And, I, and it's only the next day when, when someone mentioned Soundgarden. I was yeah. like, oh, I, I should have went up and said something. I now remember who he is. And so, yeah. It was so, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. we've, we've had a lot of fun. The cool thing is, is you're going to be here. So, you know, we're, we're going to be working together for, well, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah. You over to the I'm States. looking forward to it. We're going to do some good stuff. Yeah, so this is the first of many podcasts. Yeah. Uh, Man, I can't thank you enough. It's been great. And uh, we can't wait for the next one. Yeah, well, thanks for uh, having me on here. And let's look forward to doing some, uh, some cool stuff. Awesome. Thanks, man. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!